want to ask you this morning, do you have trouble with your memory? Now, I get a ripple of laughter, but I, I didn't say that as an old joke. I just said, do you have trouble with your memory? Because guess what? I know I do. Okay? Even as I'm 37 years old, I still struggle with my memory. The past couple of weeks, I've had to <clears throat> run out to the grocery store, and my wife has uh, given me things to, to get, or we've been out ourselves, and, and we'll get, inevitably what will happen, we'll get back home, and, and we'll start putting stuff away, and then we'll get doing other things, and then, oh, did we remember to get that? And we'll think back, oh, no, we didn't. Oh, how about, no, 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 we'll have to go back again. And it's kind of frustrating when, when, when you go through that process. You know you went there for something, and, but you ended up getting everything you didn't come to get, right? Okay. And that's why a list is so great. You know, my wife texts me a list at times and says, get this and this and this and, and this brand and this type of material. And, and so that helps me not forget because if I don't have the list, I forget at least one thing. And, and if we were to be honest with ourselves this morning, we all, we all struggle with that. We all struggle with our memory and remembering uh, different things, whether it be where we put our car keys or some of us just, just remember nothing anymore. We just, just struggle with our memory, and, and that's, that's fine. That's, that's, just, that's okay. Uh, but it, just, it happens. It's part of life, and we struggle it, uh, with it from time to time. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, Paul lays out a, a memory challenge for us this morning. And the challenge for us this morning is that you and I must not forget what Christ did for us. You and I must not forget what Christ did for us. And, and Paul lays out two fundamental truths that we need to remember to help us not forget. But before I get into those truths, I want us to look at this distinction that Paul makes in these verses. And he mentions Gentiles and by implication, Jews. We, we really, in our culture today, we really don't have a full understanding of what that meant back then. But basically, Jews are those who are the uh, natives of Israel. They are the, the Israelites, if you will. Even today, uh, Jews are referred to in that, in that respect as being part of the Jewish nation. And so they are, they are separate in their own entity. And Scripture uh, in the Old Testament especially, pointed out there was a difference between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles were the rest of the world. Uh, they are those who are outside of the nation of Israel. And in the Old Testament, that carried great significance because to be a Jew meant to be part of God's family, to be part of God's people. To be a Gentile meant to be outside of God's people. And so for us today in our culture, in our world, we, we, that distinction is not as great as it once was. Jews today don't refer to us publicly as Gentiles. They're referred to as Americans or a citizen of another nation. Uh, but in the Old Testament times, in, in the time of Paul, Jews and Gentiles was a great distinction, especially from the Jewish perspective. If you were a Jew, you had an in with God. If you were a Gentile, as the Jews called you, you had, were outside of the family of God. So I want us to keep that distinction in mind to help us understand that a little bit this distinction between Jews and Gentiles, because God is going to be fundamental to our discussion. And Paul gives us these two things, two, two truths he wants us to remember that will help us to remember what Christ did for us in this, in this discussion of Jews and Gentiles. The first thing 
that He wants us to remember is to remember your former situation. Remember your former situation. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Paul gives us a command here. But he, he, before he gets to the command, he says therefore. And the word therefore shows that this is all part of the salvation story. It links back to what we've discussed in Ephesians 2 and 1. This is great salvation that we have. That being taken from death to life and, and being redeemed and having forgiveness of sins all by the riches of His grace. Paul wants us to know this is part of that discussion. And I think it's a good reminder for us today because it is really easy for us as believers to get lost in the benefits of, of our salvation and forget how we got here. What condition we were in. We, we talk about salvation a lot. We, talk, we sing about it. We, we praise God for it. We pray for people to be saved and we rejoice in those benefits, but I fear there sometimes we forget what happened before salvation. And not, not, to be, not to be a drag, uh, I don't think that's Paul's reasoning, but, but he wants us to think about, okay, remember what, what happened in salvation, but don't forget the desperate state we got saved from. That is always a key factor in Scripture. Yes, we need to praise God for our salvation, rejoice in our salvation, but never forget what it costs. Never forget where we came from as we talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, that we were dead in our sins. We had no spiritual life. So as, as, you're, as you're encouraging people with your salvation testimony, include in there who you once were. That's what Paul encourages, that we, we, we can encourage ourselves with that. So, so this discussion is, the, is, is part of the salvation story. Your past in sin and stain, as we sing about, is part of your salvation story. Don't leave that out. Because it also is an imperative to remember. The word remember here is a command. It's intentional. The, the, the word here is intentional and mandatory. We are to remember. This is not something we are to forget. I will go back to the grocery list. Illustration. You have a grocery list so you can remember. There's intentionality behind it. And if you're a guy like me, you need something like that to keep you in line when you're going for the grocery store. And I see some guys going, mm-hmm. Because we forget. We're guys. Ladies, I'm sorry. That's, this is one of our tendencies. So we need the grocery list to keep things in perspective. Or we need the, the, the uh, Walmart list or the, if you're like me, the, the Menards list so you can remember what to get. And Paul also shows the intentionality because he's commanding here them never to forget who they were before Christ. Their condition was un- unenviable. It was desperate. And because of those facts, because that was who they were, but now it's not who they are, they, that, sh- that very idea should instill thankfulness and awe for what God has done. So, so when, when we remember things, especially when we're talking about truth here, there should also be, an, as it is intentional in our hearts and minds, there should also be a thankfulness that comes from remembering. We're coming up on Thanksgiving Day. 
we're looking forward to being, my wife and I and, and Josiah will be in New Hampshire for just a couple days celebrating with family, her family out there. And that's a time of being thankful. It's intentional for us to be thankful to God for what He has done. And when we talk about salvation, there should be that idea where we remember who we were before Christ, and that alone should be cause for thanksgiving. And notice what Paul says the former situation was. Again, we're Gentiles. We're not Jews. We're Gentiles. We were despised. Look at this. One, you, Paul's intentional in using that pronoun, you, once Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Paul uses that that phrase, Gentiles in the flesh, to describe a past condition. That's who they were before Christ. They were, they were in their, their physical bodies called Gentiles. But that was once. Notice the phrase there, once. That was once who they were. It refers to that physical marker of uncircumcision. And that's how the Jews labeled the Gentiles. They were called uncircumcision. That was, that was their, the Jews' term for the Gentiles. Uncircumcised. Not part of the Jewish people. In fact, every Jew had this view that they were un, the Gentiles were uncircumcised and therefore they were to be despised and, and not to be associated with except for perhaps on a business level. But the irony here is that those who called, the Jews who called Gentiles un, uh, uncircumcised were in fact uncircumcised themselves. That while they took pride in their circumcision, that showed that physical mark that showed they belonged to God and to the nation, that physical description was no more than a bodily mark. And the, the, the circumcision of the flesh which is that Paul says made in the flesh by hands, made physically, did not reflect an inward reality for them. But yet they still took pride in it. They still saw it as an occasion to despise those who did not carry that mark. We were despised. Secondly, Paul notes that you were without Christ that at that time you were without Christ. He, he, he makes that plain. That at that time points to that previous condition. Which gives hope. That was formerly, that was in the past. But yet, yet at that time, Paul highlights that is who we once were. And, and taking that, that phrase together, at that time you were, shows that the action is on a previous condition or state. And what were we without? We were without Christ. We, were, we, we lacked Christ. We, the absence of Christ in our lives was a real thing. We were without one person. The one person who can make us right with God. That's who the Jews looked forward to, right? Jews were looking forward to the Messiah. They were looking forward to the one who would come, set up His kingdom, make things right. But the Gentiles had no hope in that regard. They were without Christ. They had no, no concept of a Messiah. They had no one that could make them right with God. Paul also notes here that you had no access to the rights of being an Israelite. 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. I kind of liken it this way. Um, I had the opportunity in college, uh, my junior year, to go and study abroad for a year. So I went to France and lived there for about 11 months. I had a wonderful time, challenging time. But as I existed in France, I, I couldn't call myself a French citizen because I had a U.S. passport that was stamped with a student visa. And I couldn't go into a French uh, government building or perhaps a, a place of business and tell them that I wanted them to change their ways or demand my rights as a French citizen. I couldn't do that. Why? Because I'm not, I wasn't one. Still am not. I couldn't pull out my U.S. passport and say, Here's, I, I'm, I am a, a resident of your country. I have all the rights of a French citizen. Now do what I want. No. When you have a student visa, or student visa or resident visa in any country, you are able to live in that country, but you don't have the benefits. You don't experience all the benefits of being a citizen of that country. For me, you know, I couldn't vote. I couldn't express my opinion in public forums, you know, that type of thing. I was there, but I couldn't, couldn't exercise any rights of a citizen of France because I had none. That's the Gentiles' perspective. They were aliens. The word means to, to be estranged or alienate. The idea is to, to exclude or separate. This is something that was done to the Gentiles. They weren't a part of God's family, so because of that, they were alienated. They were separated from, from God, from the nation of Israel. The, the phrase commonwealth of Israel, we really don't use that term today, but the idea there is to be a member of a sociopolitical entity. It's the, idea, the idea of citizenship is in play here. Because we're talking about two people groups, Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews having their own nation, and the Gentiles are their own specific entity. They have their own people group. So the Gentiles couldn't belong to the nation of Israel. And in the Old Testament, we read and look, consider that you had to be an Israelite to have any chance of getting close to God. If you were not able, you were not an Israelite, then you had to go through an elaborate process to convert. But even then, you were still considered a stranger. Listen to Ezekiel 44, verse 9, about how God views those who are outside the nation. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. So nobody could have access to God if you weren't an Israelite. And even then, if you went through the process of converting, you still had hoops to go through. The, the example, and I didn't throw a picture up there, of uh, the court of the Gentiles in Herod's temple. There, if, you, if you've ever seen a model of Herod's temple, you'll see how magnificent it was. And having been to Israel, it's truly something to look at. But there was this big outer court in the temple that was designated for everyone to come, but especially the Gentiles. And, and the whole point of that court was for them for a place to congregate and to bring their offerings in worship. But that's as further as, as, further as they could go. They couldn't go any further. If you look at the models, you see some, a little, some more enclosed spaces, and then you have the temple itself. And those enclosed spaces where Jews could go, the women could go, and there was a little bit further where only men could go. 
So in reality, when it came to worship of God, Gentiles were no better than women. Even women of, had a better uh, position before God than Gentiles did in the worship system. So they were alien strangers from the nation of Israel. They were also had no access to God's, we had no access to God's promise, eternal promises. Where he says they're strangers from the covenants of promise. Again, stranger or foreigner conveys the idea of a, a person who's able to enter a country but has extraordinary little or no rights. It's, it's the idea of passing through. If you, again, if you've flown overseas, you have to, and going to visit a country, you have the opportunity to go through customs. You have to state why you're there. You have to show them your passport, and then you may or may not be allowed into that country. And then you're there for a certain time, and then you come back. Uh, there, there's there's a, not a permanent stay there, unlike the phrase aliens is used there. This is more of a visiting stay. So we, they had no access to God's promises. They, weren't, they, they were strangers to that. They couldn't linger in those promises as the Israelites could. And, and the promises here, the covenants of promise, refers to those covenants that God had with Israel that were unconditional, that looked forward, that said, I will do this for you. We could refer to them as the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. And while the promises themselves were in no way meant for, their, for the Gentiles, their, their very content alienated them. They had no access to them. If you read the Old Testament and those promises, those promises are specifically for Israel and, and the land and what God will do through them. And nowhere is there mentioned any reference to how the Gentiles will be involved. And so they, they, they are strangers. We are strangers to those promises. Notice also, uh, and not belaboring the point, but Paul goes on. He says, you're hopeless. Having no hope. Possessing no hope. As if we're the outsiders looking in. You could picture a big house with, as we think about Thanksgiving coming up, and think of yourself as, a, as, as coming up on a house that has all the trimmings for Thanksgiving, perhaps there's decorations outside, and you look in the window and there's food there, there's, there's, there's pie that we'll have on Tuesday night, okay? There's, there's all the bountiful blessings of Thanksgiving, and you see people going into that house or are ready to partake, and you want to go that, into that house to be a part of that, but the door is shut in your face, and then you're just left outside looking in. That's how the Jews and Gentiles, that's how Gentiles are viewed as, as they are outsiders looking in. They can see the promises, they can see what God is doing through the nation, but they have no access to them. They don't have hope. The word hope here is as you have confidence, expectation that God will do what He will, says He will do. But the Gentiles didn't even have that. They had no hope. They had no access to God. They had no, this little sliver of hope that they could perhaps have one of God's promises. That was nowhere to be found. We were hopeless. We also did not have the one true God. Without God in the world. Literally, the translation here of the phrase is no God. No God. And this is, this is incredible for, for even for the Ephesians to think about because they came from a culture that had many gods. The goddess Diana, as we talked about in the introduction several weeks ago, 
was prominent in that worship. So there were, there were all sorts of pagan deity, deities related to her. And so in their mind, yes, we have gods. We have access to a divine being. But Paul says you didn't have God. You had no God at all. It calls to mind in Acts when Paul's in Athens, Greece, and he sees all the, the altars that are available to worship different gods, and then he finds the one that says to the unknown God. What does he tell him? He tells him, you who worship him ignorantly, now I proclaim him to you. He is the only God. All that they worshipped, the pagan deities, were now gods in and of themselves. I mean, that's a harsh reality. If you're, you're, even if you're an unbeliever listening to this, perhaps as it's read in the church in Ephesus, you're thinking to yourself, well, I've got God. I mean, I have one at home. Paul says, well, you no, know, you don't have God. In 1 Corinthians 12, too, Paul states it this way, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols however you were led. They were engaged in pointless deity worship because they didn't have God. They were not even close to Him, let alone being in a personal relationship with Him. They were just so far away from God. It leads me to ask this question as we think about our former condition. Because we are Gentiles. We're included in this. Even though Paul, is, by context, is directly talking to the Ephesians, we are included in this category. As we evangelize, testify of Christ to unbelievers, are, we show, are you showing them who they really are without Christ? Are you showing them how hopeless they are, how, how they are without God, they have no, no promises apart from God? As we witness for Him, are we showing them how hopeless they really are without Christ? Now, I'm not saying that you immediately go out and Grab the, the, the first person you come to and say, let me tell you how hopeless you are. That's not what I'm saying at all. But as we testify of Christ, as, as I, I've talked with you, and this is something where I struggle, but as we testify of Christ, we evangelize the lost, we tell them what Jesus has done, do we include how hopeless they are? Do we tell them, hey, you know, without Jesus, you have no hope. You're far from God. You don't even have God. Do we include that in our testimony of Christ? We have to do, include it. Paul says, remember your former condition. Remember who you once were. Remember what you once, condition you once were in, the state you were in. And when we point that out to unbelievers, not in a, not in a critical fashion, not in a down-looking fashion, you know, let me tell you how hopeless you are. No, showing them from the Scriptures their condition without Christ. When we show that to Him, we show them how Christ meets that need. So are you doing that in your personal life? So you interact with people at, at your job. You have an opportunity, perhaps at, at the, the drive-in at the bank or perhaps in the grocery store as you're looking to share Christ. Are you, are you sharing from an attitude of they are lost, they are without Christ, therefore I need to show them the solution? Or are you showing them as well? They just need to be saved, so let me tell them how to do that. We, in our, our evangelization, we need to show people who they are without Christ. 
So Paul writes about how our former situation was hopeless. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Second thing we are to remember this morning is that remember your current situation. Reading verse 13 for us, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Don't you love that word, but? We've seen it before, going back to verse 4. But God, we have a discussion of, of being dead, no spiritual life, walking in, a, in sins, being part of Satan's family. But then you get in verse 4, but God. But now in Christ Jesus, your current situation is because of Christ. There was nothing that you and I did to attain this new position. It was all done through Christ. He is the means. He is the method by which this new situation occurs. And it leads me to, to, to ask us this morning, how thankful are we, are we thankful for Jesus Christ? Are we thankful for what He did and not only making us, uh, making us alive in Him, but are we thankful that now through Christ we've been brought near to God? Not because of our own doing, not because of our own situation, not because of our own work. We saw that last week. We, have, we can't earn our salvation, but because of Christ. Your current situation, secondly, has intimacy with God. You who were once were far off. The idea is you know, just no relationship you have been brought near. That verb, have been brought, means to experience a change in nature and so indicate entry into a new condition. And the way it's, way it's constructed here in the original language shows that the Gentiles didn't do, them, do this themselves. God changed their status for them. This is all because of Christ. Christ took them from being totally out of the picture to being in the picture to being a part of the picture. And notice how he did it. By the blood of Christ. This word blood shows, as, as there's one commentator writes, he says, the cost of bringing the Gentiles near was dear. It cost God His Son so that outsiders could be part of His family. We now have intimacy with God. We now have the ability to have a relationship with God. And praise God, it was because of Christ. Notice thirdly from this passage of Scripture that your current situation brings peace with God. For He Himself is our peace who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of, of, of separation. This peace is tied to Christ. He's, notice there, for He Himself is our peace, or He is our peace. The very fact that Christ is alive today means that we have peace with the Father having been attained. If Christ had not raised from the dead, we are of all men most hopeless, right? As Paul writes. But because Christ is alive today, sitting on the throne, we have peace with God. Don't ever doubt that in your life. As you struggle with different things in your life, the very fact that Jesus is alive means you have peace. 
You have peace with God and you have peace with each other. Because He is alive. He is our peace. Not peace that we have attained, but peace that He has earned. The word peace here has the idea of of, of harmony. It is peace with God. Jesus writes about this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid because of the peace. The Old Testament word was the, is the shalom of God. Everybody's looking for peace today, aren't they? We see it in our world today. But the peace of God, the shalom of God is the only true peace that we need. And it is our peace. It shows this peace is personal to every believer. This harmony is, is just personal to every believer. It's not something that could be possible. You know, it might, we might have peace with God. No, but it is a reality. We do have peace with God. Which leads me to say this morning, are you thankful you have peace with God? <laughs> you, and him are, you, and, you and Him are no longer against each other. You, you are no longer His enemy, His foe. You are longer, no longer rebelling against Him. No, because of Christ, we have peace. Fourthly, your current situation demands some demolition. Who has made both one, having broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the tomb, thus making peace. Who has made both one, as here's the past tense, what Christ did on the cross was bring two peoples into one new race. And notice both, not just one group of people. It's both people, Jews and Gentiles. No longer are they distinct, but are now unified. And what, how did Christ accomplish this? What did Christ do in order to bring these two peoples together to make one new race? He destroyed the hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. The word having abolished means to break down, to do away with. It can be to translate, destroy, bring to an end, or abolish. This work was accomplished on a cross. That Christ and his working on the cross, and, and when we talk about Christ's work on the cross, we're, we're so much describing not just salvation and, and the ability to be uh, forgiven through Christ. There's so much more there. So I encourage you as you think about the work of Christ on the cross, it's so much more than just being saved and being forgiven. It's, it's just got so much more than that. It, it involves restoration, reconciliation, and all these things. And here Paul is talking about how God, through the work on the cross, Christ's work on the cross, broke down the wall of separation, the middle wall of separation. The idea there is, is a wall that separates so that no outsiders can get in. And here the, here the usage is metaphorical. It points to, with the, the, the mentioning of the law of commandments and ordinances, coupled with that, it refers, and the Jewish attitude we talked about to the Gentiles being calling them uncircumcised, uncircumcised. These are the two key factors that caused this wall of separation. The Jews had the law, Gentiles didn't, didn't. Jews were circumcised, Gentiles were not. And so this caused hatred between the two. 
The word enmity cause, you know, can be translated hostility or hatred. It's all, it's all used in the New Testament for a negative connotation. The cross of Christ enabled that wall of hostility to come down. Now, the way it's... I, I'm using a New King James this morning. And the way the translators have viewed that, that word enmity, the middle wall of separation, the, the idea for the translators was to view that wall as being the law. Okay, because you see they're having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments, or that is the hatred, the law of commandments. The law wasn't bad. Okay, the law was good. We've seen, we see that in other uh, scriptures. And so I think the translators here miss this a little bit. I think the middle wall of separation mentioned in verse 14 is not the law itself, but it is the hostility, the hatred that Jews and Gentiles had for one another. Christ comes and destroys that. And in doing so, in destroying that hostility, he abolishes the effect of the law for the Jew and the Gentile. He mentions this early in his ministry, Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I come to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so what Christ did by abolishing the law was he rendered it inoperable or ineffective so that the law, because of the death of Christ, is no longer valid in the believer's life. Although it was good, Romans 7.12, therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Although the law was good, Christ fulfilled it so that it is no longer in effect. And therefore, the hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles, because the Jews had the law and the Gentiles didn't, the Jews were circumcised, the Gentiles were not, that hatred between the two groups was destroyed. Now, obviously, Jews and Gentiles still had that opportunity after Christ died on the cross, but Christ made it possible for that hostility to exist no more because he destroyed it by fulfilling the law in his work on the cross. Notice also as we move on here, your current situation reveals a new, play, new race of people so as to create himself in verse 15. Verse 15, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So he takes two distinct people groups and makes them one. He creates a new people, a new race. Christ intended not to create two, two separate entities as a result of the work on the cross, but one new race which should no longer be defined by ethnic markers. Jews and Gentiles were, were described as being having even uncircumcision or circumcision, but Christ makes it possible for that not to be in the conversation. Now there is one new people, one new race. And it's all done in Christ so as to create in Himself. Christ did this work of taking two people and making them one. Paul writes about this in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all in one Christ Jesus. And in doing so, God makes peace between the two peoples. Christ brought the peace of God. Now the shalom of God in the New Testament, that peace, that tranquility, that harmony, can exist between man and God. So this is unique, and just in this, this description this morning, God takes 
the hostility between the Jews and Gentiles gives them peace between each other. And in doing so, he makes them at peace with himself. Don't you just love how God works? God takes one thing, and we, and we, think, we see this in our lives, don't we? We see how God's working in this one area, but in the background, God's doing 15, 20 other things that we don't even know about, and all of a sudden they come together and it's like, wow! And for the Jews and Gentiles, God takes them, makes them at peace with each other through Christ, but also enables them to be at peace with Him. Which is ironic because the Jews thought they had it already, right? And the Gentiles are outside looking in like, oh man, can we have some of that? God makes that possible. He makes it possible for both Jews and Gentiles to be at peace with each other and at peace with Him. There's a lot of peace going on around here. And that's what God did through the Christ on the cross. We are a new race of people. Also notice that your current situation reconciles you to God. And that he might reconcile them both for 16 to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Where reconcile here means to, to just to come together. <clears throat> it's used three times in the New Testament. It is reconciliation to God, not, not, not reconciliation between people, but reconciliation to God. This just culminates in Paul's description of salvation and makes the reality of this of this truth even more in depth. Man has been separated from God since the Garden of Eden and is in need of reconciliation to him. And because of that, now Christ, Christ's work on the cross, that is possible. So there's no need for two groups, two groups of people to be reconciled to God. It's just one group that has been totally created for that purpose. Both those people, are recon- Jews and Gentiles, are reconciled to God. They don't have to go through different ways and different means. There's now one new way to be reconciled to God. And as a result of that, they are one new body in Christ, as he mentions there. Thereby putting to death the enmity. What Christ killed, that's the idea of the word to, to, to put to death, was the hostility between God and man. So we're not talking here about the hostility between the two groups again. We're talking about the hostility that exists between God and man. Therefore, God might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity between God and man. Man was in hostility to God because of his sin and needed to be reconciled. God brought punishment for sin, and Christ satisfied that requirement. Therefore, man can be reconciled to God. And he has the opportunity to not be in hostility to him. Notice also, please, as we go forward, your current situation is because of the gospel of peace that was preached to both groups of people. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, Gentiles, and to those who are near, Jews. Peter, in his sermon on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 39, says this, For the promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, there's just some discussion on what this means, and he came preached peace to you who are far off and those who are near. I think it's best to see this as the work of Christ through the Spirit after His resurrection. That the message of the Gospel is peace and Christ through the work of the Spirit through His church preaches that message to both Jews and Gentiles. So I I think it's the best way to see that phrase because Christ is working through us as we know from Scripture 
And Christ, through us, through the church, through His Spirit, preaches that gospel of peace even today. That gospel of peace is going out to both Jews and Gentiles so they can be reconciled to each other, but more importantly, reconciled to God. That's the gospel of peace. It's amazing to think that even you and I today, some thousands of years later, we are still engaged in that message of gospel of peace. Christ is working through us to bring peace between two distinct people groups, making them one, and giving them peace with God. You and I have the opportunity to be a part of that. Making peace between man and God. We are what, and how we do that? We proclaim the gospel. That's the word preached. We are preaching the divine message of salvation to all those who need it. And then finally, what, what, what last thing do we need to remember about our current situation? We need to remember that our current situation gives us access to the Father. For through Him, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. I would just describe this term access. Actually, I'm jumping ahead a little bit of myself. But uh, the phrase, for through Him, shows that Christ, again, it is about Christ, what Christ did for us. None of this has human effort behind it. We have access to God because of Christ. And this is the current reality. Not we will have access. Not we could have access. No, we have access now. Right now, as you and I sit here this morning, we have access to God the Father. Amen? We don't have to go through... You, thankfully, you don't have to... You, you don't have to go through me because I would fail miserably. You don't have to go through your spouse. You don't have to go through another spiritual entity. No, you have access to God now. And that never ends into eternity. We continually have access to God, the Father, through the Spirit. And before Christ, we didn't have that, but now we do. We don't need a high priest. We don't need a pastor to, to give us access to the Father. We have it now. We have access to the one true God. And the presence of the Spirit, the, the phrase by one Spirit, ensures access is where that access is found. I, I would describe the access in this way. It's the illustration of a trust fund. Perhaps you've heard of these that have been set up in, in times past mostly for for people have set up for their kids to pour money into so that when they come of age, they can have access to that money. But they have to come of age, right? There's normally a requirement that is set up with those trust funds. And the young person has to wait till 21, 25. We're talking about that right now with our son Josiah, just setting up something for him so that he can have his own finances when he's able to be of age. And, and so we have to discuss, what does that mean? Does that mean 21? Does that mean 25? What does that look like? But there's no age limit for access to God. <laughs> we have access to Him now through the Spirit. The Spirit is the, the conduit by which we access the Father. Paul writes about this in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now He who searches the mind the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit gives us access to the Father. And notice we both, Jews and Gentiles both, no longer is it just Jew, Jews who have the special inside with God. 
right? We both have it because we are in one body together. Which leads me to say this, don't, don't flaunt your access to God as something to be proud of. Don't make it like a secret group that you, you have secret access to. No, it is available to every believer, Jew or Gentile. And I'd like us to finally note about this point is that we have the whole Trinity involved. Notice, through Him, Christ, we have access by one Spirit to the Father. The whole triune Godhead is involved in this. They all have their different tasks, but everyone is involved. And the Trinity is clearly seen. So when we sing, as we'll sing here in the doxology, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we, meet, we need to mean it. Because all of them are involved in it. This, this current situation that gives us access to the Father. It leads me to a point of application this morning as we close. Are you at peace with everyone? Or just those you want to be at peace with? God has given us peace between, God made peace between Jews and Gentiles, and by doing so, made peace between us and Him. And if we have given that great, that great peace, the harmony, the shalom of God, are we seeking that with everyone we come in contact with? Or are we just saying, you know what, I really not, you know, my neighbor, he's a cranky old dude. I don't want to be at peace with him. Yeah, I'd rather him leave him alone in his crankiness and we just have our conflicts every now and again and we'll be fine. Or you know what? You know, my wife and I, we fight every now and then and I'd rather not keep the peace. I'd rather keep, up that, keep that up. Or my boss and I, you know, we, just, we just don't get along so we're just, we're just going to have to keep clashing heads, button heads together. Are you looking because of the peace that God has given you with Jews? People of a different race than you are, now being made one and peace with God. Are you looking to be at peace with others? Are you always looking for a fight? God has given you peace with others and with himself. So are you striving to keep the peace with those you come in contact with? Family or non-family? Are you being at peace? No matter who you are, Christ has made it possible to be part of a new race of people who belong to him. Let's not forget what he did. How do we do that? We remember our, our former situation, hopeless without Christ, without God. And we remember our current situation. We have access to the Father. We, we are reconciled to God and with each other. We have peace there's no longer hostility between us. May we all be thankful to God for that. Obviously, don't forget what he did. But we, may we all take that message to, to both Jews and Gentiles and show them how they can have peace. Don't forget what Christ did for you.